Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Joe Genie. This is Ambassadors at Large. So I'm sort of torn as we begin this this episode because uh, this is an episode about. Uh, uh, well, on the blog, I've been referring to them as Daesh, uh, but everyone refers to them as ISIS, even though that's not really an accurate name for the group anymore, for reasons that we'll eventually get into uh, over the course of this episode. Um, So I'm not really sure what to call this episode or what to call this group, but I guess we're going to go with ISIS just because that's the popular term uh, in most media, um, in the English language. So uh, we'll we'll, we'll just go with that. Today's guest is David Millar, who's uh, worked on this issue for uh, quite some time. And uh, uh, David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So uh, maybe you can sp- explain a little bit about uh, about how you got into this work and, and what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I started out studying East Asia. That was really my specialty. And I had no interest uh, so much in terrorism. 9-11 happened, and like a lot of people, that made me think more about the topic. It made me get interested in some of the dynamics that were going on in the Middle East and Afghanistan. Um, and then eventually I, I worked on it as part of my professional career. And uh, But I, I was sort of out of the game. I was focusing more on East Asia again when uh, the attack in Paris happened. And so that was sort of what drew me back into terrorism and specifically looking at ISIS. So, so now you, you teach on the subject. Yeah, I teach uh, a couple different courses in sort of international relations. I don't teach specifically on terrorism, but I talk about, uh, I teach a course on intelligence analysis, and uh, I teach a course on strategic culture. And, and we'll, we'll get into a little bit of that going forward, because there's a lot of different angles to come at this group. But I, I think that the thing that interests me most is we, we both sort of, I mean, l- looking at the dynamic today, it looks like the group is going to lose as far as them being a territorial entity. I mean, that was one of the things that, that's, uh, that was the most shocking about, about ISIS when they first came, you know, came into existence was that we, you know, it, it's difficult to think about them for, you know, or at least it has been until recently as necessarily a terrorist organization because they were, they had an army, they, they were holding territory, they were behaving much more like a militia or, right. or, or like a conquering army. Um, and they were only using asymmetric attacks sparingly, and it was mostly more just like taking cities and, and running roughshod over them and committing all kinds of horrible atrocities. Sure. Now they're on the defensive, and they've started to switch their tactics and behave more like a terrorist group. And they say, well, you know, if, if you're going to bomb us, then we're going to attack the, you know, the soft underbelly of your cities and that sort of thing. And it, 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 it does look like, I mean, they've lost a large chunk of their territory in the last few months. Yep. But, and we'll, you know, we can get into this, but it seems to me like if they lose their, their, their territory, their home base, it will not be the end of this group. No, not at all. And the thing that is important to understand, I think, I think a lot of people understand this and a lot of people have heard this, but ISIS as we know it today, or the Islamic State, as they or themselves refer to it, um, is very much the organization um, that Zarqawi started in Iraq in resistance to the U.S. occupation there some 10 or 13 years ago. And that was an insurgency, right? That was a below-ground covert organization 
that was not focused on controlling territory, not initially. Um, so that's, I guess what I'm saying is that's in their genetics, that's in their bloodstream. If they have to revert to that, it will be intimately familiar. And we had a lot of difficulty defeating that when that's what they were operating as. One of the reasons that, that the, the self-described Islamic State split off from Al-Qaeda, I mean, there, were, there were personality reasons why they did that. But there was also the idea that, that Al-Qaeda felt that it was too soon to declare a caliphate and that the idea of a caliphate seizing territory and expanding that territory, um, was they, they just didn't think that the ground was ready for that yet. Yeah, absolutely. And I would even, I would even cast it in a more um, critical light and say that part of the reason ISIS was so successful, that it picked up so much recruitment, is that it actually exposed the hypocrisy behind al-Qaeda's rhetoric. In other words, you had... <laughs> Guys in Al-Qaeda and other uh, jihadi organizations saying for years, you know, tomorrow the caliphate, you know, one day the caliphate. And then you had these guys under um, Zarqawi who said, you know what, wait a minute, why someday? Why tomorrow? Let's do this today. And that really kind of caught the Al-Qaeda leadership flat-footed. They didn't know what to do with that because they couldn't come out directly against it. They couldn't say that's a stupid idea or that'll never work because they would, then they'd be going against their own rhetoric. Um, but they couldn't saddle up for it either, because as you say, they didn't think that strategically it was the right timing or the ground was laid. Um, but they were kind of caught in a in a in their own uh, hypocrisy, I think. I think we at this point we we have to briefly go back to the 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 question that because it it helps to define what the group is. The question I raised at the very beginning of what to call them. Right. Here's why I don't like the term ISIS. ISIS was a term that they used, it translates to Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, or ISIL is another, is, is, the Levant right. uh, is another variant. Um, and, and that was, for a time, their initial goal was to gain that territory. Basically, if you want to be reductive, the, the predominant, the most Sunni Arab areas of Iraq and Syria. And... That was their ultimate goal, and so that's what they were referring to themselves as. But once they uh, once they achieved a t- sort of territorial mastery of that territory, they stopped calling themselves that, and they started referring to themselves as the Islamic State. And the distinction is huge because, right. in the one hand, you know, if they were just interested in if they were just interested in liberating the predominantly Sunni areas of Iraq and Syria from predominantly not Sunni governments in Damascus and Baghdad. I mean, I'm almost sympathetic to something like that, given how bad those two governments have been. But Islamic State means something completely different. Yes. And and we, I think, miss something very critical sometimes when we um, either fail to pay attention to sort of the nomenclature that they use themselves or when we say, well, we don't want to empower the nomenclature, we don't want to empower the idea that they're pushing by recognizing their nomenclature. And so that's part of the reason, right, that people have pushed adopting Daesh, is because it has a slightly sort of denigrated tone in, in Arabic. Um, that's true, but I think we sometimes miss something important about really what motivates the group and what motivates people to join the group um, when we gloss over, you know, what they actually call themselves. So, you know, this was the same group that um, that Sarkawi started as Jamaat al-Tawhid al-Jihad and had very much the same aspirational goals, right? But when they've done, when they've actually gone forth and announced a name change, they are not just doing that for, 
you know, changing it up or something. It's because they are recognizing either a new stage or they're, they're changing um, their approach to the public or to the, to the people they want to recruit. So all that said, it is important that they call themselves just the Islamic State now. I mean, they very symbolically came out with a statement that said, we are no longer the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. We are the Islamic State. And, and that ultimately involves conquering basically all of the land held by the historic caliphate, which is most of North Africa, the Middle East, parts of Central Asia, Spain, uh, Israel, several yeah. other places. Uh, and uh, th- this is ultimately, you know, this is obviously anathema to the international sovereign order as it exists today. It's a rejection of that order. I mean, that's part of what makes um, ISIS, it, which I'm we'll use that for today, right? I'm, I, sure. By the way, and as an aside, we, we keep calling it ISIS or ISIL in the government because it rolls off the tongue. It's convenient. It's easier than saying ICE or, you know, Dash for a, for a non-Arabic. It's kind of like when the artist formerly known as Prince yes. did the symbol. It was like everyone just kept calling him. I mean, some people called him the artist formerly known as Prince, but the, since the symbol, you couldn't actually say the symbol. Right. It was just sort of like, he's Prince. We exactly. know him as Prince. We're just going to keep calling him Prince. Yeah, exactly. There, there's a certain amount of, um, you know, uh, fraud involved in whatever term we, we pick, because even if we say Daesh, I mean, it's nice that we're supporting that idea, but uh, I mean, I don't speak Arabic. I don't think you speak Arabic. Nope. So we're approximating this according to what someone tells us this means or what how do you pronounce it, all of which to say there's not a single perfect solution. Um, I'll, we'll use ISIS because ISIS is what people are familiar with. It's the, it's the reference point. Um, but to divert back from our tangent here, yeah, it, um, it matters what they call themselves. It matters to the people who are receiving their message, what they call themselves. And it matters to understanding their goals and their motivations and how we might defeat them, uh, what they call themselves. So in this case, there actually is something to a name. Now, it, it, one of the things that's been interesting is, is as they've lost territory in Iraq and Syria, they've gained sort of new adherents and footholds in various other places. Now you hear about you hear about Islamic State in, in Afghanistan or Islamic State in Libya or, or Boko Haram pre- pledging allegiance to Islamic State. The, the thing that I'm always unclear about is like the extent to which these are just kind of like-minded people being like, Go get them, and and the extent to which there's actually sort of cooperation between these groups, like like it always sort of struck me that Boko Haram is just doing their own thing. They've just it's more of a branding change right. than anything else. It's like you know a corporation buys up and you know a smaller corporation and says everything's going to stay the same. It's right. just you know we've we've changed the brand name now. But it could be that there's actual flows of people and information and tactics between these groups. I, I think we shouldn't underestimate that second aspect that you mentioned, right? I mean, it's the easy sort of um, explanation for what's going on or, or the way to think about it is, yeah, there's just some group out in, say, West Africa that is vaguely Islamic, vaguely Muslim, or uses that as a as a smokescreen for political ambitions, um, local power dynamics, that sort of thing. And so, sure, why not just become a franchise of the Islamic State. But I think it's I think it's something deeper than that. I think that there is um, a transmission of ideas going on. I think that in some degree, there is um, a sense that the Islamic in, the interpretation of Islam and of its of its future that is coming out of a certain area in the Middle East that was central to Islam's history is authoritative or important somehow. Um, and I think that 
those goals and ambitions that might exist out with Boko Haram, for instance, are subject to change or modification, um, especially if they actually uh, endorse some of the ideology or terminology that's coming out from the ISIS leadership. So let's let's go forward eighteen months, and the new you know let's pretend that the continued campaign that the Obama administration has undertaken continues to wear away at the group's capabilities and territory, and that ev- eventually it collapses. Mosul gets retaken somehow. Raqqa gets taken somehow, and. Uh, the next president of the United States comes in and fulfills their promises, whoever they might be, uh, to uh, to get rid of this group. What happens then? Sure. Well, I think I think there's two ways to answer that question. Um, one is, you know, can we defeat the organization called ISIS? Yes, we can defeat that organization, but um, but. It's a totally different thing to say, can we take away their territory? Can we deny them the space in which to operate openly or recruit openly? And to say, can we defeat them as a covert insurgency inside a culture that we only sort of understand? I think that's very difficult. Um, I think that will be extremely challenging. And then secondarily from all of that, even if you defeat the movement, have you defeated the ideology? Um, What we saw, you know... it's not quite accurate to think of ISIS as a replacement or a successor to al-Qaeda, but they're certainly from the same ideological root, right? There was a baseline of ideas or teaching that gave rise to both those organizations. There's no reason to believe that if we defeat this particular organization, that another one might not rise up based on the same ideas. Islamic State is not the only really bad actor out there in the Syrian civil war. In fact, most of them are, are pretty bad. And, and Al-Qaeda's own affiliate Jabhat al-Nusra, I mean, Jabhat al-Nusra recently divorced itself from Al-Qaeda, but it was more sort of, it was purely for tactical political reasons so that they could get invited to the peace talks, which of course they were not. Right. Um, and so the U.S. would stop bombing them, which the United States did not. Right. Um, but uh, but that group still exists. It still is able to, to, to operate freely in Syria. There's a lot of other groups that, that in Syria that that are 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 also operating that are really bad right. which could take up the mantle the problem i mean one of the things about that you notice about where islamic state is able to get a foothold is it's places where the rule of law is suspect or non-existent absolutely libya northern you know northeastern nigeria afghanistan iraq syria these are all places with serious governance problems it's sort of like one element of this is you can't really get rid of this group and what they stand for and 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 people who are going to support them. I mean, there's something special about the way Islamic State is able to get foreign recruitment in a way that none of the other groups have. Yeah, I was but you gonna... you kind of have to solve the Syrian civil war to fully get rid of you know to solve this problem on the ground. I think the Syrian civil war is the <sighs> battleground that was identified by ISIS as their opportunity to do this. Right. They had tried to do this inside Iraq and inside the Sunni-Shia split and the U.S. occupation. They had even had some initial success, but we put a lot of pressure on them, and at one point it looked like they were nearly extinct. It was an interesting sort of... um, they, They took advantage of 
one, the fact that the Syrian uh, civil war, you know, developed in a certain time frame that gave them a new opening. And there was also, they also really took advantage of a policy division. They, there, was, there was a period of time where the United States wasn't sure what it was going to do, if anything, in regards to the Syrian civil war. Um, it happened at a time we were tired of being involved over there. We were tired of doubling down with our presence and our investment. And I think there was a bit of wishful thinking um, in the policy community, not just the administration, but across the way that maybe if we leave this thing alone, it will just take care of itself somehow. Um, so, but into that opening is, is where they were able to really grow and expand and become what they are today. This is the, the the thing that sort of frustrates me about it is that, and I think it's it's one of the reasons you look at at you know how the United States has approached this conflict, how 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 Turkey has approached this conflict, how a lot of different actors um, who who are not supporting the Syrian government have approached it. It's really the rebels are fragmented, and there are really there are really no clear actors where you look at them and and you're like these guys can win. If we back this horse, they can win. Really, only Islamic State and and uh, the Syrian government have really demonstrated that kind of, we're going to take territory, we're going to hold territory, we're going to be a unified political entity, and we're going to be on the offensive. Yeah, and I would even take that one step further to, to, to sort of what you were mentioning, which is that not only is there not any one group that you can look at and say, hey, this, this group has the potential to... Um, to win decisively and to administer territory, there's not really any one group we would want to win decisively and win territory, including the Syrian regime. Right? And I think that that's really kind of at the heart of the the U.S. I don't even I'm not even sure if I want to call it indecision because it was more just looking. I mean, maybe looking at it and being like, we have we have no dog in this fight. Not to be all James Baker, but like we really, do, you know, there's no right. horse here that we can back who can actually win and then restore order in the country, as opposed to having a, a sort of Libya-style chaos in the aftermath of, of the removal of the government. Well, yeah, you're right, and and I would go on to say even that this gets at the heart of I think what you sort of talk about in this podcast, right? Is that is that this is this is a major foreign policy debate that has never been settled within the United States. Does the, does the security of the United States depend on us monitoring and getting involved in foreign conflicts that appear to have no direct stake on our security? Or do we only intervene or only get interested in those ones where there's a direct threat? Here, in the beginning, there was no obvious direct threat to the United States homeland or Europe um, by these different factions fighting in Syria. But it's evolved to a place now where there is one. Part of that is almost an inevitable result of the conflict dynamics within Syria itself. And it's one of the reasons I think why why ISIS has been able to thrive as much as they have is that that many of the actors really have a a, a different actor that they're really focused on. You, you, many of the actors on the ground are really focused on removing the Syrian regime. Right. And so they don't really focus on ISIS as much as they should. And like the 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 Turks are are now moving in. They just launched an operation to take villages in the north um, from Islamic State, but they're also simultaneously bombing the Kurds, who are one of the main factor, factions fighting Islamic State. And so it, it's like 
a lot of people aren't focusing on Islamic State because they have a, a more natural enemy, you know, like Iran and, and, and Hezbollah and Russia, who are all backing the regime, are focused on the, the I hesitate to use the term moderate because what does it mean, but the, the, the more moderate rebels who have Western backing because those are the ones that they actually think in the long term can actually win. So everyone's kind of like ignored Islamic State, which is one of the reasons why they've been able to thrive so much. Yeah, I, I don't think it's necessarily that they that they ignored the Islamic State. I think that what you are seeing with some of the regional players is a very cynical, um, or I guess you might say realistic, approach to to responding to it. I mean, Iran in particular, I think, looked at this, pieced it together, and said, "There's an opportunity for us here. Um, there's an opportunity for us to increase our presence, increase our influence in the region." There's our opportunity to solidify our relationship with Assad. And, and a sense of loss aversion as well. Oh, like sure. The fear of losing Assad and yeah. losing you know, the, their access to Hezbollah in the way that they'd had. Yeah. No, you're right. They're defending interests that they have and investments that they have there. But they're also expanding into the eastern part of Iraq in a way I think that was unthinkable five years ago. Um, and that's kind of the story that's being missed here in, in a way is like, what's, what's the, what's the demographic or what's the battleground going to look like, um, the day after ISIS is defeated, you know, it's not going to be the Iraq that we knew, uh, five or six years ago. The, the thing that kind of scares me in, in a way, Islamic state, when they controlled territory, they, they, they were almost behaving like a state, a really terrible state, but, but like a state. And, and I felt that, our our international order is built to deal with states and state to state relations and and there's a deterrence factor like don't attack other states or else you yourself will come under under attack because you're an aggressor state so in a way the world of islamic state when they first took the territory that they took was somewhat more i mean even though it, it was horrifying to watch what they were doing it it was it it seemed more manageable than the world that i'm imagining 18 months from now when when let's pretend that they've lost their territory in syria and syria is still probably going to be a mess the war is probably going to go on for several more years but they're not going to have a home base to operate from but they'll operate more like al qaeda and they'll commit global acts of terrorism and they'll inspire disaffected people to act to, to commit global acts of terrorism and you know so the the kinds of attacks that we've been seeing in France there's only so much you can do about that yeah. you know a deranged lorry driver you know, this sort of thing what do you do about well, this Well I was going to say you know the, the <clears throat> as we as we kind of started at with this with this podcast right it's almost unavoidable that the U.S. military versus the Islamic State's military, the United States military, will win. We have dominance in so many different areas, and even in the areas where we have vulnerabilities, we're learning to we're learning to close those. We're use, learning to close the cycle, right? We're hurting them in a lot of different ways, and you see that if you look at where they were 12 months ago, if you look at where they were six months ago, um, you know. It's almost more painful to watch it contract slowly, inch by inch, than it would be if I had a sudden collapse. So on the surface, it looks like, okay, we have the upper hand here. But the strategic advantage that the ISIS uh, leadership and is leaning on is, yes, but you don't care enough about this. You don't care as much about this as we do. So maybe you beat us down today, tomorrow, next year, the year after that. But there will reach a point where you will decide that it's not worth it for you to have a base here it's not worth it for you to spend money here it's not worth it for you to you know risk your 
your your servicemen's lives here, and then that is when we will come back and take over. It, it's fascinating to see how they almost alone among groups they and part of this goes back to them not caring about the international sovereign order, but the way they glorify their acts of violence. The Syrian government does probably kills more people, but they don't brag about it. Yeah, they don't. In fact, they don't want us to know that they're using chemical weapons. They, well, <laughs> the, the Syrian the Syrian government is playing. You're right. The, the, the I would say the Islamic leadership, the Islamic state leadership, is in a way um, dealing a, a straighter hand than the Syrian regime. The Syrian regime, though within the political dynamic internally is definitely sending a message and it's not a subtle one, right? Um, and if you go back into Syrian history and see what they did at Homs or other places where there was a resistance, I mean, that was not a subtle message, right? That was a massacre and it was a massacre that happened in slow motion. So everybody who lives in Syria knows about that and remembers that. And I think, you know, same thing here. That, that's a really good point. Um, but co coming at it from the the, the United the, the 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 perspective of the United States, the way that that ISIS basically almost forced us to get involved against them, almost goaded us deliberately through the execution of journalists, through the publication of atrocities on YouTube, particularly the, the execution of American journalists. That was James Foley. That that was yeah. really what sort of set it off. I mean, yeah. I, I remember immediately after that, I was, I was walking home one night after a party in D.C., and this random drunk guy just came up to me and started ranting. He was like, these ISIS fuckers, we've got to do something about them, blah, blah, blah. We've got to really take it to them. And I was just like... This is a Friday. What? Why? What? <laughs> Friday night drunk conversation. With yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was. Just, it was like people. It, it really captured the the American mind. Right. And and you've seen some of the the talk about. It, it was a really interesting article that Graham Wood put put together um, called "What ISIS Really Wants." How he he says that they they talk about the idea of how how Rome will will come to the Middle East and, and to, to the Levant and that they, they keep basically trying to get the United States to intervene. And part of that is, is, is Quranic stuff and part of that is the tactical aspect of they would, they would love for us to attempt to occupy the place sure. and, and unleash all kinds of chaos against us. Well, and, and they have the upper hand as an insurgency working within the areas and the, and the ci ci civilian population that they know and they have connections to, right? Relatively speaking, that gives them the upper hand. Um, that said, I mean, I think that another angle on that is that there is a, there's a recruitment appeal, right, to the, the propaganda message that we are uncompromising, we are we are we're not diplomats, right? We're not making compromises and negotiations with the United States or Europe. We're just laying down the law and telling them how it's going to be and picking a fight with them. You know, there's I think I think there's a propaganda appeal to that to say to saying we're not afraid to pick a fight. We're not afraid to take on the great superpower, and we're going to win. It's a bit of a we've created a bit of a paradox here because. On the one hand, we we recognize that the odds of us getting goaded into actually putting boots on the ground and and finishing this thing off are very low, 
and that's probably a good thing. I mean, if Donald Trump becomes president, who knows? But but the odds of an actual all-out U.S. invasion are pretty low. But we, we're acting under the assumption that the group is going to continue losing territory and that they're ultimately going to collapse, at least as a political territory-holding entity. Is there any way that doesn't happen? Yeah, I, I, I think there is. And um, I think it's worth thinking about a historical precedent where where this ha- this did more or less happen. But before I go into that, let me just lay out two bookends here. I mean, there is essentially one bookend is the U.S. technological and military superiority. There's essentially no way that the United States military could ever be defeated in a classic sort of military battle, right? Like we just have too much of an edge, and they can't make it up. On the other end of the of the bookend, if you will is more on the ideological side, which is that uh, the United States will never care as much uh, about what happens in Syria, Iraq, as Syria and Syria's and Iraqis do. Um, so in a way, I think that's the kind of the bookend that ISIS is leaning against. It's sort of like, you you can defeat us today, right? You can you can defeat us in a battle after battle after battle, but at some point, you will you will have to yield to the fact that you can't defeat us without taking over this area and administering it yourself, which we're not willing to do. It reminds me of the Battle of Algiers, the the movie, but also the, what actually happened, yeah. where basically, spoiler alert, uh, the French initially win. They basically put down the, uh, the, the uprising and they use a whole bunch of, you know, combination of superior firepower and intelligence tactics, and they basically hunt down and, and capture or kill almost everyone involved in the resistance. But at the very end of the movie, there's this subsequent uprising that happens that seems seemingly comes out of nowhere that is this spontaneous uprising where it's like they've clearly not killed the idea of an right. independent Algeria. And that concerns me because, you know, back in 2007, 2008, we talked about how we had defeated Al-Qaeda in Iraq and how terrorism had been defeated and how the surge had worked. And then literally four years later, these guys show up out of nowhere. Right. Uh, but obviously not out of nowhere. Exactly. The, the seeds for this were were, were very heavily planted well and and not just the seeds you're right absolutely not but not just the seeds the groundwork was actually going on in that time period and it just corresponded with a time period where we had policy goals in another direction (laughs) remember in 2008 the obama administration came in and one of the first thing that they decided to do policy wise is shift the focus of um the war effort from iraq back to afghanistan to try to decisively put an end there before we um before we pulled out so, um, you know, if you ask me, like, how could this, how could, how could we conceptualize the Islamic State winning? I think there's two ways, right? One is, I think, if they were able to pull off a survival strategy, sort of like what the Chinese Communist Party did in the 1930s um, and, and survived their, the crackdown by the nationalists. Now, just quick historical review here. Um, the, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, now rules China and has ruled China for 60-something uh, years. But if you were asked to put down odds on the chance of their victory in the mid-1930s, I mean, it might be a 10,000 to 1. They were 
thoroughly penetrated in the cities by the nationalist um, secret police. They had been militarily defeated in several areas by the better equipped and better trained and better resourced U.S.-backed nationalist army. So there was basically very little likelihood, it would appear, that they would ever come out victorious. So what happened? What happened was they, they survived for two years, three years, four years, including something that was called the Long March, which, was, which in, in, in CCP history today is this glorious sort of victory for the communist movement. But if you were being honest about it, it was a very sad and pathetic retreat that took place over the greater course of a year. You only need a few people with an idea to endure or even the idea itself. I mean, Zarqawi was was killed in an airstrike, uh, but there were a few people who kept this idea going. And then the the dynamics came into effect for them to exploit this idea. Uh, and, and propagate this idea. The Syrian civil war breaks out. The Syrian government loses its ability to control its territory. And at the same time, the Iraqi government is becoming more sectarian and more autocratic or, or, or majoritarian, I should say, uh, and has marginalized the the Sunni tribes in in mostly in, in Western Iraq. And, and so there's a lot of political space for a group that says, no, we're going to rebel against all of this and, and none of this is working, none of this has worked, none of this has worked in a very long time, we're going to go back to the thing that does work, the thing that has been demonstrated to work uh, in our ancient past, and we're going to do that. Yeah, I think, and I think, you're, I think you're right. I think there's some uh, wishful thinking about the idea that a sort of thoroughly Islamic group um, would install the kind of peace and security and justice that was promised or that was recorded in the ancient version of the time. Yeah, I should clarify. I don't. I don't subscribe to that. That no, I, believe. Yeah, absolutely. No, <laughs> I don't sure, think. But. I think. I mean, there. There is part of me that that says that 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 just like communism, uh, this might be an idea that that needs to be tried and found wanting. Well, I think that's what's happened, and I think that's the major difference between the historical example that I referenced with the Chinese Communist Party. By the way, just, just to complete the analogy, the reason that the CCP was able to successfully take over China was because, first, they actually they did survive, and despite overwhelming pressure. And two, the conditions were ripe throughout China for them to pick up recruitment. <coughs> And that really had a lot to do with the poor perception of the nationalist government, the corruption, the anger at the populace, and and kind of the status quo. And I think that's where the corollary works, right? I think that it's I think the places that ISIS rolled into in Syria and Iraq, it wasn't so much that they were overjoyed that ISIS had arrived. I think it was that these bums can't be any worse than the last bums, right? I think it's no coincidence that almost all of the countries that that ISIS has thrived in are in the top 10 or so of the most corrupt countries on earth. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, there is a genuine and authentic and understandable frustration and anger with not just corruption, but um, what we would all recognize as just kind of rampant injustice. You know, the idea as uh, we, we talked a little bit about like Tunisia previously, I, I mean, 
the reason that people would sign up for ISIS in a place like Tunisia or Egypt or Jordan or, or Turkey or wherever, um, it often has to do with whether you are subject to random violence at the hands of your own police, your own military forces, your own, you know, sort of local uh, administrators, you know. If you've had that experience, right, of being the subject not only of violence, but of totally unwarranted violence, totally unchecked, and that there's no recourse under the system in place, right? There's no, there's no, there's no possibility of taking a cop to court and finding him guilty and winning a judgment. There's, you can understand the anger that starts from that. And you can understand why if someone comes forward and says, hey, we're gonna, we have an alternative and the alternative focuses on justice. And yeah, we're harsh when we institute punishment, but we're fair. We, we institute the law where there's been a transgression and that includes the police or the military or whatever. Yeah, and uh, so th- this really dovetails into the what's going to be the second part of this podcast because we're, we're just about out of time for part one. But um, t- I think one of the things that this, this whole conversation has showed is that it's not going to be as simple as just defeating these guys militarily. They're going, the ideology that they have is going to continue to exist. And so it's really important to understand that ideology and figure out what causes people to be attracted to this so that in the long term we can, we can come up with alternatives so that people don't support this sort of thing. Um, that'll be part two. So thank you so much for listening to part one of this podcast. Um, uh, you can find the podcast online uh, at joegenie.com slash podcast. Uh, it's J-O-E-G-E-N-I dot com slash podcast. You can also subscribe for free in the iTunes store. Uh, and apparently we're also on Stitcher, I'm told, although I had nothing to do with that. That was that was all Stitcher. So thank you, Stitcher, uh, for putting us on the uh, <laughs> on your platform. But uh, but yes, you can uh, you can find us on iTunes or Stitcher by searching for ambassadors at large. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back with part two real soon. Bye-bye.